Um, okay, uh, you can open up your Bibles if you have one. If you don't have one, uh, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Or open up your little app on your phone and scroll to it. Um, but I, I can tell if you're on Facebook. I know. I'm a dad. I can see. I can see through the lies. So stick with the paper. That'd be my uh, recommendation. But no, it's okay. I got to move into the 21st century. Um, Luke 13 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 13. So in your New Testament, there's Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, and then uh, Luke's. And we're chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. We're only going to look at really four verses, I guess that is, here this morning. But um, it's pretty awesome stuff. So let's let's uh, read it. I'll pray and, and we'll dive in. And he, Jesus, told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray. That we anticipate you moving in our midst here this morning. It's great to gather with the saints around the cross and open your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us supernatural ability to focus. I remember what you said of, I think it was maybe Lydia with Paul, as he talked, that you opened her heart to tune in and pay attention to the things that Paul was saying. I know I'm no Paul, <laughs> the apostle, but I do pray that, God, I'd be true to your word this morning, that as I'm true to your word, that myself included, but all of us here would find our hearts opening to it. Tuning in to what you would say to us. God, we recognize that there is so much clamoring for our attention. The advertising industry is a study in how to make all of these lesser things seem more important than they are. More pressing than they are. More necessary than they are. You need this. You want that. You've got to get that. Lord, there is nothing more that we need more than this. To hear from you. To have you speak. To have you save. To know your grace. So I pray you do these things and more. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, last week, uh, just 
briefly recounting because I think it actually corresponds with where we're going to head this morning. Last week, if you recall, we ended with these sobering words from Jesus back up in verse 5, just one verse before our text this morning. Jesus said this, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Not a popular word, but a loving word nonetheless. And you remember what Jesus was referring to, perhaps. There were two tragic events that had, it seems, just kind of taken place in the nearby kind of surrounding area there in Jerusalem. In one instance, uh, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea for Rome there, um, actually had come in on some Galileans who were offering sacrifices in the temple and just killed them right there. And in another instance, uh, a tower seemingly collapsed and fell on unsuspecting bystanders down below, killing them as well. And Jesus knows that the people in his day, and ours as well, is not much difference, uh, we're looking in on situations like that, tragic events like that, and saying, oh, that's too bad, I'm so sorry for them, I wonder what they did to deserve it. Because we know that stuff happens, bad stuff happens to bad people. A particular judgment from God, perhaps for a particular sin, or as Jesus puts it, uh, we're kind of thinking they must be worse sinners than us. But Jesus will not let them nor us off the hook. He will not let us wiggle free so easily. He loves us too much for that. And so last week we talked about how this call, repent or perish, you need to repent or you will likewise perish. It's basically him saying, listen, when tragedy strikes, however far away, it has a message for you too. It reminds us that we are living in this fallen world under the curse of God because of our sin. And if we do not repent and receive the work of the Son, flee to Him for refuge, we too will face judgment. And it will be far worse than the sword of Pilate or a crumbling tower. It will be the very wrath of God. Now, I said last time, and I feel it's important enough to say once more again, the call to repent or perish here, we, I think, are prone to read that. I mean, even me as a preacher coming to some of these texts, I go, oh, really, God, can't we just skip to like Luke 15 where we get to talk about the prodigal son and the, the leaving the 99 to get the one and all those happy things? Do I have to say We think these words, repent or perish, are harsh and cold. And calloused. It sounds like Jesus has kind of got this fire in his eyes. Looking, kind of grates on our American ears. Who are you to tell me? What I said last week is to feel, to come to such conclusions about Jesus' word here is not to take in the whole story. 
but to take in half of it and then draw mistaken conclusions from it. Because truly what we see is that the call to repent or perish is not merely a threat, though it is that. It's also an invitation. It's not merely a warning of impending judgment, though it is that. It's also an offer of free, unmerited grace. It's not merely an expression of God's anger against our sin. It's an expression of His compassion, His care, and His concern that we not face that anger. There's this incredible, mysterious reality to the gospel, and I wonder if you've caught on to it. We're going to get into a little bit more of that today, I think. But it's this kind of paradoxical sense that we actually flee from God. (laughs) You want to preach? You want the mic? (laughs) To God. To God. That the greatest problem in yours and my life, not your health, not your financial situation, but the wrath of God that abides upon you because of your sin. And the great solution, none other than the grace of God, whereby he puts forward his son to take the judgment you deserve. Great problem, the wrath of God. Great solution, the grace of God. Flee from God, flee to God. That's the mystery of the gospel. Repent or perish at the end of the day is not bad news. It is actually leading us to the good news. And we must not miss that. You thought I was going to have a happy little introduction. We're in it. We're in it deep right now. I feel I see it on your faces. Some of you are still waking up. This is like a punch to the gut, a little theological. Sorry. But we must not miss that. And Jesus doesn't want us to miss that either. And I think that's why now to get into our text, he basically comes at these same realities once more, yet from a different angle. He's going to come at uh, these realities now by telling a story, a parable, using picture. And so that's what we're going to look at now in verses 6 through 9. You'll see on your handout that I've titled uh, the sermon for this morning, Divine and Holy Tensions. And perhaps you're starting to get a sense of where I'm going, although you might uh, not have any clue as of yet. Uh, regardless, let me at least give you a roadmap, and then hopefully as we go, uh, these things will start to make sense. First, what I want to do is actually identify what these tensions are that I'm talking about. Uh, then I'm going to trace them out through Scripture, lead us to the resolution, and finally uh, make a couple application points at the end. So first... I want to identify these divine and holy tensions. I want to help you see this in our text now, this parable that Jesus gives us. Um, 
Before we can really dive into the matter that I'm particularly concerned with this morning, I need to at least do one thing as far as background work, uh, something that may otherwise be lost on you, depending on how familiar you are with, with the scriptures. Um, if you notice, our parable begins with this idea of a, a, a guy who owns a vineyard, and in that vineyard he plants a fig tree. Well, there's something I want you to know about the symbolism here that is important. Um, when you take into account the whole complex of, of biblical revelation, when you take into account the Old Testament, all the stuff that's come before this moment that Jesus is speaking, um, what you will realize uh, is that these pictures, fig tree, vineyard, vine, um, throughout the scriptures, they, they're symbolic of Israel. The people of Israel, the children of God. I'll give you just a couple of, of quick examples of this. Isaiah 5, 7, he just says it outright for us. He says, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. The psalmist in Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9, reflecting on the Exodus, listen to the language that he uses here. He says, you, Yahweh, brought a vine out of Egypt. A vine. You drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. He's planting a vineyard. That's the imagery of the Old Testament. When he brings Israel out from Egypt to the promised land, it's like God getting ready to garden. Like I hope maybe we'll do this year. If I can figure out what to do with those rats and birds and squirrels. Gosh, last year was just depressing. Jeremiah 8.13, warning Judah of the impending Babylonian exile. Jeremiah says this. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. So he's talking about Vines and fig trees, as he's talking about Israel, he says, even the leaves are withered and what I gave them has passed away from them. So these are pictures, symbols throughout the Old Testament and on into the new of the people of Israel in particular. So when Jesus is talking about a fig tree planted within a vineyard, he's talking about the Jewish people and the dangerous situation that they find themselves in because they're hearing his words, they're seeing his miracles, and they're still closed off to it. They're uninterested. They're unrepentant. They're unfruitful. It's a dangerous situation that they're in. What we have here really in our parable, I think, is just kind of a riff on the same thing that John the Baptist uh, said uh, back in, in Luke 3 when Jesus is first coming on the scene and the, uh, the, the Jewish leaders and others from Israel are coming to be baptized by him in the River Jordan. You remember what he says. He even uses some of the same imagery. Here's, here's kind of the fullness of his thought. Verse 7, Luke 3. You brood of vipers... Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, 
Just like God was saying here, cut it down in the parable. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's talking to Israel and the people there in Jerusalem. And and he's saying, listen, don't trust in your heritage. Don't think that you're somehow going to escape the wrath of God due to your sin just because he chose you in grace. No, no, no. There needs to be repentance and a full reception of his Christ. And the, the one that all of these things point to throughout your history. He's here. You're rejecting him. This is trouble. The blood of bulls and goats never removed any of your sin. It's all Him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John would say. Follow Him. And someone going, ah, I don't know. So the coming of Christ initiates a crisis for the people of Israel. What are they going to do? Will they repent, receive, and finally start to bear fruit? So Jesus is continuing to develop this idea here, I think, with the imagery of a vineyard and a fig tree. But now, with that behind us and those things understood, uh, at least here at the beginning, I think we're prepared to consider that which I found myself most captivated by, and I want to bring your attention to it now. Let me do that by asking a simple question. Um, In this parable... If the fig tree and the vineyard are symbols for the people of Israel, who do you think the owner of the vineyard is? Who is the man who originally planted the fig tree, who comes looking for fruit on it year after year, who is now fed up with it and calling for it to be cut down? Look again at verse 7 so you see that what he's saying here. He said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Who is saying that? Not just... Humor me for a moment, because I recognize I just gave you some pretty uh, significant hints in the right direction. But just imagine, perhaps, some would hear this call to cut down the tree and think, ah, clearly it's Satan. Clearly this, this sounds too harsh to be God. I mean, the God I know is, is a God of love. This sounds harsh. Clearly this is Satan wanting to destroy the work of God, calling for judgment to fall upon it. Maybe sounds good at first, but upon closer investigation, this interpretation will not hold. Because Satan never planted Israel, but rather has always been looking to uproot her. And Satan will never come concerned to get fruit from her branches. He would rejoice in the day that if he could wither it up and make it fruitless. Now, this isn't Satan speaking here in the parable. I think it is a picture of God himself. Yahweh. You say, okay, I could see that. I understand God is uh, holy and just and three years of no fruit. It makes sense that there would be justice called for in these moments. But now hold on with me. Remember, I'm trying to identify these divine and holy tensions. So stay with me. There's a tension in our text in this parable. Because the owner of the vineyard is not the only character in this story. There's dialogue with another. 
there's a back and forth taking place. I wonder if you see it there. There's this vine dresser in verse 7. And this vine dresser, I'm sorry, yeah, identified as a vine dresser in verse 7. And he talks in verses 8 and 9. And we see him kind of pushing back, it would even seem, on what the owner of the vineyard is calling for. The owner of the vineyard comes and says, no fruit, I'm sick of it, cut it down. All of a sudden, verse 8 and 9, the vine dresser says this. And he answered him, sir, Let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So the owner, who we've concluded is God himself, is calling for one thing, and now the vine dresser is here pushing back, as it were, and calling for another. So who is that? He said, okay, all right, all right, now, again, humor me, all right, now I see, that's got to be Satan. If I know anything about Satan, it's that he's always opposing the will of God. He's always pushing back. He's always twisting and trying to distort and get things to go his own way rather than the will of God. But yet once more, upon closer investigation, we realize that such an interpretation will not hold. For since when would Satan argue against judgment and for mercy? The argument from the vine dresser here is patience, mercy. When would Satan ever say that? Last I read, he's called the accuser of our brothers. Revelation 12.10, he accuses them day and night before our God. What he is saying is not, have mercy, give him a little more time, fruit will come. He is saying, that's right, take him down now. You see the junk, you see the sin, you see the stuff, take him down. Not Satan talking here. Now, I think we have to conclude yet again that What we have here is the same thing we had with the owner of the vineyard. We have God himself, as it were, in dialogue with himself. If I could put it bluntly, perhaps a little bit hyperbolically, in this parable it seems we have God arguing, as it were, with God. An argument ensues, and it's God against God. I'm aware that we could perhaps personify these two as maybe the father and the son. Maybe that helps us a little bit. But when we understand from Scripture the doctrine of the Trinity, we, we come to realize that God, though he is three in some mysterious way, is also one. And there is a unity to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so even though it does seem like, oh, maybe they're separate guys with separate ideas, they are one. And yet there's this internal Tension. What we have here in this parable is a dramatic and vivid picture of the tensions that exist within God himself. Between his justice and his mercy. Between his holiness and his grace. Between his righteousness and his patience. 
We've identified now what I'm calling, therefore, divine and holy tensions. Cut it down! Give it more time! Just one more year! Let's trace this idea out biblically for a moment. Because I suppose, if we've been reading our Bibles Maybe you're new to the scriptures. No worries. Maybe you've been in a long time and this still sounds new to you. I want to show you how it's been here all along. And perhaps it shouldn't have even surprised us to see this sort of thing, these sort of tensions within God himself coming out in our parable. Because it seems to me that God in the scriptures uh, actually attaches these tensions to his very name. I wonder if you remember the story with Moses in uh, Exodus 34 when Moses uh, says, God, show me your glory. I want to know more about you. You told me I am who I am. And said so you told me that's your name, that, that you always have been, always will be. But that doesn't tell me all that much about who you are, what you're like. Show me your glory. And so we're told that, that Yahweh... Sets Moses, as it were, in the cleft of a rock and descends in his glory and passes by him and proclaims his name to him. And this is what he says. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And did you hear that? Do you hear the tensions that are present within God himself that he attaches to his very name? I am. I'm the Lord, the Lord of God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, in abounding in steadfast love, forgiving unto the thousands. But I will by no means clear the guilty. He just said you forgive. What do you mean? I will by no means clear the guilty. I am not only gracious, merciful, I am holy and just. Divine and holy tensions here. I demand justice, in other words, but I desire to show mercy. This is the sort of thing we'll see play out again and again. Let me show you some examples in the scriptures of this, especially in the Old Testament, making our way to Jesus. Um, consider Adam and Eve and the tensions that are there. Uh, this is always a good starting place because it's where things started. God tells them in, in Genesis 2, right, that uh, you should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for the day that you eat of it. You will what? Surely die. Well, the day comes when they eat of it and what happens? Yes, okay, I know they die spiritually, but the floor should have just dropped out. 
Yes, I know, okay, he does bring some judgment down upon them, and he has to send them out from his presence, but it's all laced with grace. It's as if God says, ah, no, I want to bring justice, but not yet. Not yet. Let me instead talk to you about a coming one who will put an end to these things, make it right, and make a way for you to come back home to me. He restrains a lot of his judgment and offers a promise in grace. That's what we see. Or in Noah's day, as I think I even mentioned last week, God sees the evil that had just saturated his creation because of the sinfulness of man. And we're told to even almost like repents for creating us. That That ought to break our hearts. If God ever were to repent of anything, it would be for creating me. <laughs> because I'm so sinful and, 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 and errant. So he goes, all right, well, I am just. I demand justice. The right thing to do with the wickedness that is spread is to snuff it out. So he purposes to flood the earth, but we're told then... Genesis 6, 8, Noah found favor, or the word is grace, in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, let's make an end to it. Wait, maybe not just yet. Maybe one more try. Let's start again with him. That's what he does. The demand for justice and the desire to show mercy. These divine and holy tensions. Some of my favorite examples, and I'll camp here with you for just a moment, um, actually come from uh, the stories of, of Moses and his interactions with God in the Old Testament. Um, consider, for example, Exodus 32, 7 through 14. I might have to go quickly through these, but I, I, and I'm going to read a lot of scripture, but I think their, their narrative, their story, uh, I think you'll be able to grab a hold of it. Uh, but Exodus 32, 7 through 14, God has just kind of freed his people from Egypt, brought them out from under Pharaoh's thumb. Uh, he's led them now to Mount Sinai, entered into covenant with them. They are entering into covenant with him as well. They say things at the base of the mountain like, uh, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Almost sounds like Peter, right? I'll never betray you. You just see Peter there with them down at the base of Mount Sinai. Well, in a matter of days, they break. They break that word. They break the covenant. What's justice look like in those moments? What does the glory of God demand of those who have exchanged his glory for lesser things? Verse 7, Exodus 32. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up. I love that. He says, you brought them up, Moses. I didn't do it. (laughs) Whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. 
They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. The pause. What we have here is the owner of the vineyard stepping on the scene. I'm looking for fruit. I'm not seeing fruit. I'm tired of their grumbling already. Cut it down. (laughs) I mean, Moses hadn't been a little bit flattered. Start a new nation from me. Okay. No, that's not where Moses goes. Listen. Listen to Moses speaking into these tensions within God's heart. Listen to Moses now. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you, you did this, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger. And relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. He said, God, remember, there's another side to your glory. There's another side to your name. Actually, he will... uh, Reveal this name in the context of this. Exodus 34 is coming up in just a chapter. It's very interesting. This is when God speaks to him about these tensions. But Moses is here calling on it. Say, wait, there's more to you than just justice and wrath. There's grace and mercy. Remember us for mercy, oh God. Verse 14, and the Lord relented. From the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses won the argument. <laughs> As it were. Psalm 106, 19 to 23, recounting this incident, says this. I love the, the picture here. They made a calf in Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Sounds like Romans 1, if you know it. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, that's Egypt again, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses is here pictured as standing in the breach for the people of God to turn away God's wrath from them. You know what a breach is, right? The dictionary defines it as a gap in a wall. Barrier or defense, especially one made by an attacking army. There's a hole in the wall and the attacking army is coming through. Well, who's the army that's coming to attack? It's God. 
It's God in His holiness. He says it elsewhere around Mount Sinai. Don't let them too close lest I break out against them and consume them. Moses is standing in the breach to protect the people of God from the wrath of God. Wow. And He's going to do it again. Numbers 14, 11 through 20. They've made it through the wilderness now. They've seen all God's provision, protection, in spite of all their grumbling, all of his pardoning of their sins up to this point. And now they are ready to go take the promised land. They send some spies over to check things out, make sure it looks good, get maybe strategize a little bit. But they all come back dejected, saying there's no way we're going to take this land. These people are way bigger, way greater, way stronger than us. Caleb and Joshua alone say, wait a minute, they ain't bigger than our God. It may be bigger than us. That's fine. So it was Pharaoh. Not bigger than our God. But the rest of Israel cries out, let us choose a leader for ourselves and go back to Egypt. We're done. We knew he was going to bring us out here just to kill us in the wilderness. We're done. While the people were preparing to stone Caleb and Joshua and perhaps Moses and Aaron at this point. That's kind of the Old Testament way of impeaching a leader. (laughs) All of a sudden they start grabbing stones. You know it's not going to go well for you. Unless, of course, as what happens here, the glory of the Lord descends. And he speaks. Verse 11, Numbers 14. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, disinherit them. I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. He's saying the same thing. Moses, for the last time, would you listen to me? Let's cut this fruitless tree down. Let's plant something fruitful in its place like maybe you. That would be great. But Moses holds his ground just like he did at the beginning of all this. He will stand here at the edge of the promised land now in the breach for his people. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, it's just amazing. I could just kill the entire nation as if it were just one man. Just They're gone. What an image. If you were to kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, to uh, that he has killed them in the wilderness. In other words, God couldn't finish his end of the deal. He must be weak like we thought. And now please, Moses goes on, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised. And here he calls on the name. As you have promised to us, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Give it one more year. We 
may get some fruit yet. Verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. I can't linger here for long. I gotta move us on, but let me at least make this plain. I want to tell you what's not happening here. What's not happening? <laughs> this is not uh, God like losing his cool on a regular basis and Moses coming to talk sense into him. Looks like that. It looks like God, Yahweh, is almost like that friend that you'd be like, you know, ashamed to roll with in college, perhaps, because you try to go out to a party or something, and if anybody kind of dogged him or his mom or whatever, he was going to be brawling by the end of the night, and you were going to have to step in and try to calm him down. Put the guns down, bro. You're going to regret it in the morning. Is that what's happening here? Moses is kind of hanging with God, kind of cooling him down when he gets hot under the collar, talking him off the ledge when he's about to do something stupid. Is that what's happening here? No. No. God is still God. He is still Yahweh, the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Alpha and the Omega. He is not changed or shifted. He is not uh, confused, and then Moses sheds light on it. He is always not just one step, but a trillion steps ahead of us. If I could give you an image, this is God. Before the starting pistol is ever shot, he's already at the finish line. We know that. So what he is doing here, It's not asking Moses for help. Realign me, I'm losing my cool. Instead, he's letting Moses into these divine and holy tensions that exist within him. When he vents about his purpose to show wrath, he is baiting Moses to enter in and call for grace. He is giving Moses an experience of what it's like within himself. To demand justice as a holy God and yet desire to show grace as a God who is merciful, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger. He's bringing Moses, in other words, deeper into his heart. And you and I with him. But now, he is doing more than just this with Moses here, isn't he? And here we get to this idea of resolving the tensions. He is doing more with Moses in these stories and in these historical incidents than merely bringing him deeper into an experience of his heart or something. Now with Moses, God is actually giving us a picture, a signpost who will point us forward to yet another who will come and stand in the breach for the people of God, who in the face of God's justice will call for God's mercy, namely Jesus, the man in this in this parable, the one who was telling this parable to these people. Cut it down. Give it more time. Cut it down. Give it more time. Cut it down. Give it more time. Who's saying that? It's Christ for us in the breach. 
But, and now here is the most important thing, perhaps I'll say all day. While Jesus is similar to Moses in many ways, here's what makes him so superior. Jesus will not only stand in the breach for the people of God. He will actually bring resolution to these divine and holy tensions that subsist within him, within God himself. Now, now, listen to me, hear me. In many ways, Moses, as he continues to talk God off the ledge and talk God off the ledge, as it were, is actually creating more problems, more tension. When he's calling God to turn away from justice and show mercy in those moments, stop, show mercy, show mercy. No, don't take, don't take your wrath out now. Not now, not now. What he's really doing is, is in essence kind of developing and adding to this tension that exists because at some point the scales of the universe have to be leveled. At some point the sins of all these people And the rebellion and idolatry. And now we move towards you and I. Our sins, our rebellion, our idolatry. At some point, this has to be paid for. This has to be made right. To just keep passing over and passing over doesn't make God a good judge. It makes Him a horrible one. If a judge on the bench in Santa Clara County kept pardoning people even though they were clearly guilty of things like theft or or, or rape or murder. He would be ousted from the bench in a heartbeat. So there is a problem in the universe if this continues. And Moses in many ways, because all he can do is try to call God, uh, convince God to show mercy is actually adding to the tension, adding to the problem, you could say. Paul in Romans 3.21 and through 26 is talking about this very thing when he basically surveys the Old Testament, it seems, kind of as it were. He's looking at the whole Old Testament and he goes, oh my goodness, there's a big problem. Because God has been passing over sin and passing over sin and passing over sin and passing over sin and forbearing with us all of these years. What about his justice? The real question that he asks is, how can God be just and the justifier of the ungodly? How can he remain just and show mercy to sinners. That's the sort of stuff that keeps Paul awake at night. So how does he answer? Or perhaps better put, how does God answer? Look at Romans 3, 23 to 26. Or at least listen. Because his answer is the cross. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul writes, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. You get that, right? God's righteousness was in question because he had passed over former sins for so long. His righteousness is in question. So what does he do to display his righteousness, to show his righteousness? He puts forward his son and he crushes him. In our place. It was to show, verse 26, his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, here is where Moses and Jesus significantly part ways. Moses could stand in the breach for God's people, but all he could do was beg God to hold back the justice and the wrath. Hold back the wrath. But Jesus comes on the scene and he doesn't just call God to hold back the wrath. He says, pour that wrath, fill the cup and let me drink it in their stead. Down to the last bitter drop. Jesus takes the justice God demands from me so I can get the mercy God desires to show to me. This is what the word Paul says here. Propitiation It's what the word means. It's a wrath removing sacrifice. That's what the cross is. It takes the wrath you and I deserve. Jesus takes it, drinks it down for us. He gets the justice. I deserve so that God can show me the mercy he desires to. It's incredible. I've heard it said that at the cross, justice and mercy kiss. In other words, this divine and holy tension I've been talking about. No longer Arguing at the cross to find sweet resolution. Here is how he can be both just and justifier of the ungodly. If you and I, here's how there's hope for us. This is the extent that Jesus will go to help you and I bear good fruit. Now, I recognize that I have broadened the scope of this parable and done a bit more than perhaps you thought I would or even think is there. We'll actually return to the idea of fruit a bit more next time and trace it actually on into the verses that follow on forward into Luke. But I hope that perhaps seeing these things, identifying these things has been helpful. But what I want to do now, I mean, we did all this heavy... Bible, listen, I realize there wasn't much application until this very moment. But talking about Israel and all this stuff. Right now, I'm going to talk about you. Right now, I want to bring all of this to a close by just bringing two quick, pointed, hopefully, application points. First one, I want to come at it by asking a simple question. When you are struggling with sin... When you are feeling fruitless or dry, 
withered up. Maybe you're there right now. Just look for fruit on the branches of your life. I don't see any. Discouraged, disheartened by the sin that you continue to seemingly naturally produce so freely and horribly. When you're in that place, here's my question for you. Where is Jesus in those moments? Where is he? I'll give you a few options to see if any of these fit. Is he standing aloof with his arms crossed, perhaps looking down his eyes or looking down his nose at you? A bit ashamed to be associated with you? A bit frustrated that you're still dealing with these same things? And when is it going to get any better? What does he have to do? How long does he have to put up with this? Is that where he is? In your fruitless moments, your fruitless seasons. Or perhaps you don't have that kind of Jesus. Perhaps you can have the drill sergeant Jesus, like the coach Jesus. Like, you know, in Rocky. I can't even remember the guy's name. For some reason, the image just popped up. What's his name? Nick. Nick? That's his coach? No, is it really? Is, is he lying right now? I don't even remember. Is it Nicky or something? I don't know. The guy, I just have this scene in my head where he's like, Rocky's like running or pushing the car and he's just sitting there, you know, like, do the work! Come on! It's like this old guy who could never do it himself, but he's all tough. Is that where Jesus is? Just kind of on the side, barking orders. You shouldn't still be dealing with this. Get up! Try again! Come on! Is that where he's at? Well, perhaps your Jesus feels like he's nowhere around at all. He's left the scene a while ago. Absentee. According to our parable, and hopefully all the stuff that we've kind of seen through history with Israel and how that kind of played out and now informs our understanding of this parable, according to the picture that we have in this parable, you want to know where Jesus is? And you're fruitless, you're dry, you're struggling times. You're not arms crossed looking down. He's not barking orders off from a distance. He's not absentee. He's in the dirt. He's in the dirt. I want you to see this. Look at verse 8. Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Did you hear that? He's saying, let me get dirty. Let me get in the soil. Let me get in the ground. Literally, let me get in the crap. That's what manure is. It's just a euphemism for poop. And Jesus is saying, let me get in there. If I could just get in there, if I could get one more year in the soil, we'll see some fruit. He's not off at a distance. He's right in the midst of your junk. And he's working for your good. And let me just remind you that this is why I spent all the time on Israel. Just to get to this point. He's talking here about an unrepentant, uninterested people. A tree that's never born fruit, not born again, not, not, not even wanting to. How much more so then for the majority of you and I who do desperately want to see fruit and are disheartened that we don't. How much more so is he in the dirt around our lives, working the soil? 
My goodness, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Right? Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. That's what he's doing. He's in the dirt for us. Application point number one. Here's the last one. Just move from the indicative to the imperative. I don't want to let you off the hook here for a moment. If he's in the dirt for us, you think we can get in the dirt for others? Do you have anybody in your life right now that's hard to love? Let me tell you something. I know the answer to that question. Yes. Why? Because I'm in your life and I know I'm hard to love, right? (laughs) We're all... We're all sinners. We're all broken, jagged. We hurt each other. I might look good from a distance. Get to know me. I'll let you down. I'll offend you. I'll hurt you. We're all hard to love. You got people like that? How are you going to respond? You might never say it. Maybe you would. I don't know. Let's cut this tree down. I'm going to cut you off. I'm sick of it. I, I, I mean, I've tried. I've tried, Nick. For goodness sake. I did all I could. I'm sick of it. I don't want to put up with the struggles and the pain and the heartache. No, I'm done. Cut it down. Why did I go through all of this with Israel? Sure, that's our story too, and it's God's love for us that abides. How much more so than us for others? We call you through this parable to get in the dirt with Jesus. Around those people hard to love in your life. Beg God with Jesus for another year. That'd be crazy. We get it so backwards. We kind of rejoice when we get to bring the judgment. Or when it comes from outside, it's even better. Look at that. The heart of our God is, man, I don't desire, I don't, I don't like the death of the wicked. I desire to show mercy that they'd repent, that they'd turn. We've got that heart, you get in the dirt. You get to be like the Apostle Paul. Let me just read this to you and I'll close. Colossians 1, 28 through 29 just brought to my attention yesterday. I was like, this is it. This is what I want to be. Paul gets it. Listen to what he says his life is all about. He says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then hear this, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Did you hear it? Paul is toiling and he is struggling for what? To present others mature. In other words, to help others bear Good fruit. Paul is in the dirt with Jesus. He's in the muck. He's in the crap. He's ready to go with Jesus. The energy that Jesus has given him moving through him. The same love Christ has shown us moving through us to others. My time is up. Let's pray. (laughs) God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word to us. I trust that even though I did a long survey of some biblical texts and themes, that you had something specific that you wanted to speak.
to each individual here in a personal, intimate way. It may still even be unclear. And so God, as we enter now into a time of response and singing, waiting on you, make it clear. Let us repent and return to you. Let us flee from your wrath to your grace. Let us flee to the cross where your justice and your mercy kiss. In Jesus' name, amen.